0: Welcome to the STI's podcast. I'm Claire Tanton,
1: an epidemiologist at UCL. And I'm Swazik Clifton, a survey researcher at NatSEN Social Research.
0: And we work together on the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, or Natself for short. And today Swazik's going to talk about the latest findings from the survey and how they were received by the media. And I'm going to discuss the next steps for dissemination. So perhaps we should start with you saying something about the background to the study, Swazik.
1: Well, Natsal is a collaboration between UCL, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Natsen Social Research. The latest Natsal findings were published in November in The Lancet, and at the same time two companion papers on the methodology were published in STIs. This survey is the third in a series, which have taken place roughly every 10 years since 1990. One of the unique things about the survey is that we use probability sampling, so that gives us data on sexual health and lifestyles, that is representative of the general population in Britain. The first survey ended up providing valuable data on HIV transmission in Britain and became a key resource for understanding sexual behaviour in the general population. Over time, our research questions have evolved. So now as well as looking at HIV, STIs and reproductive health, this latest survey has used a broader definition of sexual health, which includes pleasure, function and sex free from coercion as well as these new areas, having data from all three surveys means that we can look at change over time.
0: So there's a huge amount of information to share with the public. So what did you think were the main stories picked up on by the media?
1: Well, I think we all felt that there were several big stories in the six papers that could have been picked up on by the media. But it was interesting that all of the media, so whether it was television papers or the radio, they all seemed to pick up on the same three stories. Um, I think that was surprising to us at the time, since we've been working on the papers as a package, so it was strange to see just a few aspects being picked out in isolation. Um, However, looking back now, it seems obvious that there would be some findings that would be more appealing to the media than others. So the first story which received a lot of coverage was the changing behaviour of women over the past decade. Between the first two surveys carried out in 1990 and 2000, we found big increases in a range of sexual behaviours, such as increases in number of partners for both men and women. Since 2000, reporting of sexual behaviours has generally stabilised in men, but we've seen continued increases in women. Um, So that means that the gender gap in sexual behaviour is closing. We also found increases in the diversity of sexual practices, so more women reporting same-sex experience, and um, increases in heterosexual anal sex for both men and women.
0: And the media also seemed interested in how our attitudes have changed.
1: That's right. So the increases we found in diversity of sexual behaviours were mirrored by an increased acceptance of same-sex partnerships but we didn't see the same increased tolerance for all relationships. On the other hand, more people were disapproving of married people having sex outside of the marriage. So it seemed that people had become more tolerant of diversity, but less tolerant of what might be seen as disrespectful relationships.
0: And what about all those headlines about iPads?
1: Well, in spite of the increase in diversity, we found a decrease in how often people in Britain are having sex. Uh, So people reported a median of five times a month in 1990, and this decreased to four times a month in 2000, and three times a month in 2010. That decrease remained even when we restricted our analysis to people living with a partner, so it can't be entirely explained by changes to the demographic composition of the population. It does seem to be real change in frequency, and that seemed to really capture people's interests. A lot of journalists sought to understand why we're having less sex as a nation. Um, of course, our role as a cross-sectional quantitative study is to robustly measure behavior, and unfortunately we we can't always provide explanations. What was interesting for us was to see how this got picked up by journalists, reporting first journalists reporting the study findings, um, but then later by lifestyle columnists and bloggers who were all putting forward their own theories for the decrease in sexual frequency. Um, One of the most popular theories seems to be the iPads in the bedroom idea, so uh, the concept that modern communication technologies are now part of even our most private spaces and are impacting on our behaviour and relationships.
0: Yeah, and with such extensive coverage of the finding and such wide debate in the media and online, what are the worries about losing
1: control over the way in which the findings are reported? Well, as you know, Claire, we spend hours agonising over the accuracy of our reporting and the most precise wording to use. So there's always an element of fear, I think, over losing control when those findings are in the public domain. Um, but we felt that the coverage we received represented the findings accurately on the whole. I mean, there were a couple of exceptions where journalists mistook the average frequency of sex as being three times a week rather than three times a month. But apart from that, we, we thought that things were um, represented fairly accurately. As a research team, we're really pleased to see such wide debate and interest in the findings. And we feel that it's important that sex is seen as something that can be talked about. Looking back over press cuttings from the previous survey, the media response was similar in that findings that were picked up on by the press were the population averages. So things like how often people are having sex and how many partners they're having. But apart from the occasional headline, like um, lesbian nation, we feel that this time around there was actually a maturity to the press coverage, which was less apparent 10 years ago. So our more sensitive findings were covered fully and were not sensationalized. For example, our finding that one in 10 women had experienced sex against their will, that was given detailed attention in The Guardian and was covered in depth on Women's Hour. Um, And so maybe that represents us as a society getting to a point where we can talk about sex with more maturity.
0: Yeah, and I know that you were um, involved in planning the media strategy, Swazik, so do you want to say a bit about how you encourage sensitive media coverage?
1: We had tremendous support with our press strategy from all the institutions involved, particularly from the media teams at the Medical Research Council and the Wellcome Trust, who fund the study, and the press team at The Lancet, and they ensured that the press launch was targeted at the health and science correspondents. They also helped to shape our messages in a way that would give the media a story, but would still be accurate and sensitive. And we also tried to make it easy for journalists to navigate the results because there was just such a lot of information there. So as well as the press releases, we worked with a graphic designer to create some infographics um, that presented the key results as engaging graphs and pictures. I think these were really helpful, and a lot of the papers ended up publishing the infographics alongside their stories.
0: Yeah, they seem to have been really successful. Um, and what about the survey methodology? I know that being from NatSEN, that's very close to your heart. Did the media show any interest in the methodology, or was
1: it just the results of the survey? Oh, well, there were a handful of pieces that did mention the methods, um, but most of the time, the media were just focused on the results. And in some ways, I was disappointed that there was no attention given to the methodological strengths that set Natzen apart. So that's things like our large representative sample or the methods we use to encourage accurate reporting. However, we did communicate those things to the journalists, and I think that the fact the study was given such high-profile coverage from some of the most respected outlets like the Today program and the broadsheet papers, I think that reflected an understanding that this was high-quality research. So the launch of the findings was a success as far as the media was concerned, but that's not the end for us. So, Claire, what do you feel are the next steps for the NASA team in terms of dissemination?
0: Well, as you've said, Swazik, the good media coverage is really important as part of engaging the public with the subject of sexual health. But a core aim of Natsel has always been to influence policy and services. So the last survey was used to inform the delivery of the National Chlamydia Screening Program, the HPV vaccination program, in estimating the prevalence of HIV in the population and much more. And we're really pleased that the latest data are already being used to inform mathematical modelings looking at cervical cancer prevention programs, for example and to provide updated HIV prevalence estimates. And I think it was really clear to us um, before the results came out that there was an appetite for these updated findings, and there seemed to be a lot of anticipation around the new survey results, for example, from sexual health professionals on Twitter. So as a research team, I think we now need to make sure that it doesn't stop at this initial media coverage and Twitter excitement, and that we now proactively engage the sexual health professionals and educators with the findings, particularly those that weren't covered by the media.
1: What would you say are the key messages that you think we need to disseminate more widely?
0: Well, one of the good news stories in our paper on STIs was the large increases in the uptake of both sexual health clinic attendance and HIV testing over the past two decades. And we're able to look uniquely in that cell at who is and isn't currently accessing services and interventions. So these findings are really important in the context of current changes to service commissioning. And we need to be proactive to make sure that they reach the people who will now be involved in commissioning sexual health services. Um, As you mentioned earlier, our findings on non-volitional sex, particularly the large proportion of women who reported having had sex against their will, were picked up by some media outlets. Um, And I think more broadly, this seems to have fed into a general societal discourse around uh, consent and around the need to educate young people about more positive sexual relationships. So I think we'd hope that NATSA will continue to inform the sex education agenda. Um, But also our finding on men's experience of non-volitional sex wasn't picked up by the media. Um, And the media often frame non-volitional sex as a women's issue, and research on men's experience of this is scarce, so I think these findings really address a really important research gap.
1: We also have data on people up to the age of 74 for the first time. So what new messages have come out of having the extended age range?
0: Well, I think there are important messages for clinicians in our paper on the interplay between health and sexual lifestyles across the life course. So when people are ill, the impact on their sex lives and relationships is an area that's not often, um, often not addressed by clinicians. And we actually found that one in six people said they'd had a health condition that affected their sex lives, but most of those people hadn't sought help or advice from a healthcare professional. So raising awareness of this among healthcare professionals is important to ensure that patients get the appropriate advice on this really important aspect of their life. But on the other hand, there seems to be um, a kind of over-medicalization of sexual problems, as you can see from the increasing use of both Viagra and treatment for low testosterone in men. Um, we actually found that sexual function problems are a common occurrence at all ages, but only a small proportion of people said they were distressed or worried about their sex lives. So we are arguing for an approach that accounts for the variability of sexual function experience in the population and the personal significance of sexual function problems. So over the next few months, we'll be looking at ways to engage all of these different audiences with the Natsal data.
1: Thank you for listening to this STI podcast about the latest Natsal study. The full papers are available in The Lancet, and methodological papers are available in STIs. All are open access. You can find more information on the study, including the infographics, on the Natsal website at www.natsal.ac.uk.